Thank you, Dana. Hey, again, good morning. If you have a Bible, will you uh, make your way to Acts chapter 16? Acts 16. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack, and you'll find this passage on page 925. All right, so we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. Just a short passage, but a powerful passage. And before we read God's Word, I, I want to take just a moment and set the stage. Uh, it's always good to uh, take a moment to review to uh, see how we've gotten to this point uh, in the history. Just before this, the Apostle Paul and his band of mobilized missionaries, which now includes Silas and uh, Timothy, they had uh, picked up Luke in Troas and I pointed out last week, from this point on in Acts, this firsthand, uh, this, this uh, secondhand history that Luke is recording becomes a, a firsthand eyewitness account. And we begin to see that in the pronouns. Um, when Luke was writing chapters 1 through 15, it's them and they and they did this and now it's us and we. Um, and so Luke begins to join that group and travel. And then from Troas, they made their way to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. And we're going to see in the text this morning, they stayed in Philippi for a little time. And uh, Philippi was not an especially religious place. It was um, a Roman province that had become a retirement community for former Roman soldiers. And so, of course, you had a little bit of Greco-Roman polytheism, but that was about it. It wasn't a religious place, and so when they went there, they planted a church, and it became a special place for the Apostle Paul. The church in Philippi was one of Paul's favorite churches. Years later, he would write them a letter. It's the book of Philippians, and uh, it's a love letter. It's a letter gushing with affection and praise. Uh, this church had a special place in his heart, and we're going to see this morning the, the birth of that church and the first few people in it. So that's the setting, and let's pray, and we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word remains forever. Uh, your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and God, your Word works. It simply works. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would go before me as I preach the word and would, would uh, unstop our ears and open our eyes and give us receptive hearts as we uh, read the word. The Holy Spirit would uh, do a work within us this morning that we would see more clearly Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 11, this is God's holy word. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and, follow, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed or where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, 
She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. May God write his word upon our hearts. I came across an article uh, a couple weeks ago titled, Born to Do Drugs. And, and the, the article's about the complex nature of substance abuse, uh, the complex nature of addiction. And in the article, uh, we're introduced to this young woman named Marnie. Uh, Marnie's father, in her words, he was a functioning alcoholic. Uh, her entire life, uh, he battled excessive drinking. And so she determined, Marnie determined as a young girl, that she was not going to follow in her father's footsteps. She was not going to make the same mistakes. But when she became an adult, she found that she, she was following in her father's footsteps. And one glass of wine in the evenings with dinner soon became one bottle each evening with dinner. And as the years passed, this woman who determined to avoid her father's mistakes wrote that she couldn't even begin the day without a drink. In the article, uh, there's this addiction expert named Dr. Glenn Hansen, and he says that substance abuse is, is a case of complex genetics, that there are over a hundred different genes involved. I want you to keep that in mind because we can substitute substance abuse with any number of sin struggles. Sometimes it's a learned behavior, sometimes it's our genetic wiring, but each of us can find ourselves facing a sin struggle that was our parents and their parents before them. And, and I would contend that there is one addiction that we all battle. There, there's one area of sin that confronts each and every one of us, and it traces back to our very first parents. In the garden, the serpent said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God. He was saying, you can receive for yourself the glory that is due God. You can be like him. And that, that penchant for pride has been passed on to each and every person in each generation. Friends, we are pride addicts. We are glory grabbers. We're merit mongers. We constantly want the credit that is due to God. And yet everything that's good in us, everything, that, everything good that comes from us is a work of God's grace. It's not our work. It's not our merit. It's not for our glory. But there's a complex genetic at work. There are complex genetics at work. And just like this young lady, Marnie, when it came to substance abuse and the addictions there, we can be determined that we're not going to follow in the footsteps of our first parents, but determination won't cut it. This addiction to pride and glory and merit will only be broken through the gospel. And so this passage, in a very subtle way, reminds us that it is always the grace of God alone at work to us and through us that brings salvation. That brings change. And so, with apologies to Don, who shared this morning in Sunday school, he said, I always have three points. Well, today I only have two. So, apologies there, Don. Uh, two things in mind that I want you to consider. First, I want us to consider how God's grace alone to us 
is our only hope for salvation. God's grace alone to us. It's our only hope. Lydia, the woman we're introduced to in this text, she's a religious woman. We know that because the text says that she was a worshiper of God. It was obviously her practice to meet up with other women on the Sabbath at a makeshift place of prayer. And so she was a religious woman. She was a devout woman. But that does not mean that she was a Christian. You see, in that day, there was a category of people called God-fearers. God-fearers were not Jewish. They were not born and raised as Jews. They hadn't converted to Judaism, but they had, along the way, learned about the the one true God of Israel. And so they, they tried to follow him as best they could. Lydia was a religious woman, but religion doesn't get you in right standing with God. Even though she was making an effort to worship God, Her heart had not yet been open to the true life-giving message of the gospel. See, we don't get an A for effort when it comes to religion. What changed Lydia from being merely a religious person? And she was religious. What changed from her being a merely religious person to being a daughter of God, a follower of Jesus? Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This this was an act of God's effectual grace. It was God's grace alone to her to open her heart and to bring her to saving faith. And the same is true for each and every one of us. It's God's work alone. It is his grace to us alone that opens our heart to the gospel. That opens our heart again and again to the gospel. Now, I want you to consider what this means, and I want to spend just a few moments talking about this in some very personal and practical ways, that it's God's grace alone to us that opens our heart to the gospel. It doesn't matter what kind of effort we put forth at religion. Unless the Lord does a work by his grace, all that's for naught. And so let's consider what this means, and I want to first consider this from a negative perspective. If you do not believe or if you fail to remember that it was God's grace alone to you, then you'll put your confidence in religion or religiosity. You'll put your confidence in religion or religious practices. Again, Lydia was a religious woman. She made an effort to worship God, but that didn't change her heart. And if you put your confidence in religion or religious practices, even with the best of intentions, you'll simply turn faith into performance. I was cleaning out my office uh, this past week, and I came across this little booklet. It was hidden on a bookshelf behind some others. I'd forgotten about it. It's a, it's a reprint from a little book from 1701. And it's titled, The School of Manners or Rules for Children's Behavior at church, at home, at table, in company, in discourse, at school, abroad, among boys, with some short and mixed precepts. Kids, pay attention. These are the rules for church. Decently walk to thy seat or pew. Run not, nor go wantonly. Sit where thou art ordered by masters or superiors. Shift not in thy seat. 
talk not in church, especially in times of prayer or preaching. Fix thine eye upon the minister and wander not thy gaze. You know, those aren't entirely bad practices. But there's a reason the Puritans never had any fun. Friends, a whole bunch of us, whether as children or adults, we've approached faith that way. We've approached faith as a bunch of rules, and we've turned simple faith into performance. And we put our confidence in our performance or in our religious practices. And listen, your eyes may be fixed upon the minister, but if you don't see Jesus, that's, that's who we're to fix our eyes upon. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So you may have your attention turned towards me, but if the Lord hasn't opened your heart by his grace, it's all for naught. It is not religious practice or performance or following rules like this that changes a heart. It's the grace of God alone that changes a heart. And then our practices follow. And when you carry this out a little bit further, it is possible, and I would say it's quite common, to have an entirely distorted view of the Christian faith. And when a person's view of the Christian faith is distorted, it is very easy for them to walk away from that faith. Rod Rosenblatt, a, uh, a Lutheran minister who contributes to the White Horse Inn broadcast, he's a Lutheran professor, he said this in a recent broadcast, People often tell me that they are done with Christianity. They no longer believe. They are walking away from the faith. When I ask them to explain the Christian faith to me, they tell me about a religion that centers on them, on their performance and practices, and of course it never seems to be enough. I tell them, if that is Christianity, then I would walk away also. But it's not also came across a book this week by Samuel Williamson. It's provocatively titled. It's called, Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? And he tells this story. Several years ago, I met a woman distraught over her son's rejection of Christianity. She said, I did everything I could to raise him right. I taught him to be like the heroes of the faith. With the faithfulness of Abraham, the goodness of Joseph, the pure heart of David, and the obedience of Esther. She wondered why he'd rejected Christianity. I wondered what took him so long. When we base a relationship with God on religion or religious performances, we may make it for a while. But there's a really good chance we'll burn out. We must believe and remember that it's God's grace to us alone. It was God's grace that opened our heart to the gospel, just like Lydia, and it's God's grace that continues opening our heart and changing our heart. And so that's from a negative perspective. That, that will, it's, it's very easy to walk away from a faith when it's, not, when it's not the true faith. It's very easy to make faith something like this that fits in a little book. But from a positive perspective, what does this mean? To the degree that we believe and rest in God's grace alone, we can joyfully engage in religious practice without religiosity. So Lydia 
She was following the custom of Paul and others. More than likely, she continued to go to this same place and meet on the Sabbath for prayer. One of the things we know about Philippi is it's not a religious place. It was just a, it was a small mixture of Greco-Roman polytheism, but there weren't even 10 Jewish men early on in Philippi. Because if there were, they could have constituted a synagogue and these Jewish women could have gathered there. But there weren't even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. And so they met at this makeshift place of prayer. And I'm sure Lydia, just as Paul, when he would go to a new place with Silas, one of his first stops was always the synagogue. She continued her religious practices. What I want you to understand, friends, is that Lydia did not become less than a worshiper of God. She became a true worshiper of God. Her practices now flowed from a changed heart. When our hearts are changed by grace, we're overwhelmed with humility rather than filled with pride. When our hearts are changed by God's grace, we're overwhelmed by humility and pride begins to dissipate. You know, the funny thing is, and I've talked about this with Jason so many times, we who believe in the doctrines of grace are sometimes the least gracious people, the most prideful people. The glory that we crave for ourselves when God changes our heart becomes the glory that we then give to God. The merit that we seek becomes praise that we give to Jesus for the merit he has accomplished. And I want you to understand that our prideful addiction isn't broken. This is an addiction that will always be with us. Our prideful addiction isn't broken. But when, when grace changes us, we're at least able to admit that we have a problem. There's a complex pattern at work, and it goes back to our first parents in the garden, that we are glory grabbers, pride addicts, merit mongers. And the only solution is to keep coming back to the gospel of grace. That's the only thing. So it's God's grace alone to us, just like it was with Lydia. And the second thought that I want you to consider is that it is God's grace alone through us that he uses for gospel witness. Consider Paul. Paul was a, he was a powerful figure. He was trained by Gamaliel in the, in the law and in rhetoric. He was, a, he was a great speaker. He was a biblical scholar. We know he was a stellar evangelist. Everywhere he went, people came to faith. Everywhere he went, new churches sprung up. But it's interesting, we see it. He could talk and talk all he wanted. But until the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said, his words fell on deaf ears. Think about that. This is Paul. But it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. It didn't matter what he said unless the Lord did a work by his grace. And the same is true for us. We, we as, as, as Christians can work and work, but unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Now, don't let that discourage you. In fact, be encouraged. Because that means the weight of changing a heart doesn't rest on you. It rests on God. And he's pretty good at his job. He's been changing hearts and breaking down barriers since the beginning. So let's consider this in, in some personal and practical ways. What, what does it mean that it is God's grace through us that causes the gospel to flourish? Well, first, 
believing that it is God's grace at work through us and God's grace alone keeps us from becoming novel or getting too cutesy. If I didn't believe, I'm going to peel back the curtain here for a moment. If, if I didn't believe that it was God's grace alone at work simply through me as a messenger, as a conduit, that it was God's grace alone that changes hearts, then I would be tempted to come out here every Sunday on roller skates, juggling oranges, trying to, to wow you. Or, or we would put on some laser light show in worship to create a frenzy of faith. But listen, that, that doesn't work. Never has. So I, I don't have to be novel. And that's why we can say it with full confidence when Jason and I say it almost weekly that we have one message and that we do the same thing week in and week out. We don't feel the need to be novel, to get cutesy, to come out on roller skates or to you know, do the latest and greatest because we believe that we cast out the seeds of the gospel and God by his grace makes it work. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't be prepared. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, be prepared and that we shouldn't try to share the gospel in thoughtful and winsome, creative ways. We should. But it means that, that God's grace working through us keeps us from becoming captive to any kind of popular methodology because we believe in a particular message. So we've got a message, so we don't have to be as captive to a method. And we can use what works when it's faithful. We can trust the ordinary means of grace. That's what we do each week. We come in here, we read God's word, we sing some songs, we open up his word, we share the gospel, and every other week we eat and, we eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. We believe that it's God's grace alone. We call those the means of grace. That's our confidence. And so we can trust. And, and, and that would be a second thing that I would share with you. God's grace alone through us makes the gospel flourish, which means that we can trust God to work and we can have great confidence that he will work. Uh, years ago, when I was in seminary, one of my good friends, uh, Gene, he said, Jeremy, if I believed like you, if I were a Calvinist, then I wouldn't have any hope or confidence in my preaching. I said, if I weren't a Calvinist, I wouldn't have any hope or confidence in my preaching. But because I believe that God's grace is more powerful and persuasive than I am, I can have great confidence that he will open hearts, that he will change hearts. Everywhere Paul went, he seemed to have confidence. The expectation that God would work, and everywhere he went, the Lord did work. Paul was faithful, but it was the grace of God working through him that yielded fruit. What I want you to understand in the last thought is that this complex pattern of addiction for glory, for merit, that has plagued us since the garden, it longs for people to make much of us. We want for ourselves what rightly belongs to God. We can even vow to not succumb to pride, but it will slowly make its way back into our heart. And when the Lord works through us, and he will, when the Lord works through us, there's a very real temptation to say, look at what I've done. Look at, look at what I've done. 
And so we have to believe and remember that it is God's grace alone through us that causes the gospel to flourish. Paul himself said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God, God gave the increase. And so it's never, look at what I've done. When you're faithful and you're following the, 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 uh, the modus operandi of, of Acts and you're going to and fro and you're living with people and you're, you're inviting them to table and you're, and you're living out Acts 1-8, but you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit empowers you. As you're living that out, God, by His grace, will work so that He gets the glory, not you. It's never, look what I have done. It's always, look at what God has done. And, and isn't He kind to let me play a small part in that? We have a part to play for, for sure. We have a part to play. Just like Paul, we might not be church planters, but as we go and we engage, the Lord opened up her heart, but it was Paul who spoke the words. Right? So as God puts you in relationship with others, it's his grace alone that goes before you and does the work, but you've got a part to play. You must go where he guides and speak to whom he leads but you can trust and have great confidence that he has gone before you, that he is doing the work, that the same gospel and work of the Holy Spirit that changed your heart is working through you to change others' hearts. And so let's pray that God would even go before us now. Heavenly Father, thank you that this whole enterprise doesn't rest on us. It doesn't rest on us doesn't matter. Um, J Jason and I should come into this week, come into this service prepared. We should have given thought and prayer to the Word. Uh, we should be uh, trained and, and seeking to be clear with the message, but this whole thing doesn't rest on us. Thank God. Lord, it's your grace alone. As, as John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and then grace, my fears relieved. It's all your grace that opens our eyes to our sin and then leads us to faith in our Savior. It's your grace. That it doesn't matter uh, how religious we are. It doesn't matter um, what sort of rules we seek to keep if all of that keeps us from seeing Jesus. And so would you open our eyes to see him more clearly? To bask in the grace of God uh, daily. And then, Lord, to be faithful, to leave this place empowered and strengthened, encouraged, to leave this place being a witness for you, but knowing that when you work, that we don't say, look at what I've done. We say, look at what you've done. Look at what Christ has done. That it's your grace. Let us believe that. Let us live from that. For your glory. Amen.